There are a couple times a year when a cop has to control the traffic at the end of our streets. Uh, cars flock to the business that's, that's at the end of my streets two times a year, and they flock to the parking lot that's too small and that's too difficult to maneuver. Now, the two days a year that the cop has to control the traffic is the day before Valentine's Day and the day before Mother's Day. I wonder if you can guess what kind of business is at the end of my street. It's a flower shop. Now, flowers are an interesting gift, aren't they? Now, I'm making a little bit of fun of flowers, but I'll try to be fair. Flowers in a vase allow you to enjoy inside what's normally only enjoyed outside. Here's the thing about flowers, though, and you know this. Flowers don't last. You can get all philosophical with me and tell me, well, that's part of what makes flowers special is that they don't last. Well, you can't say that, or you can adopt a practice that my family has largely adopted. You no longer get flowers so much. People really get excited when they get plants. Yes, plants take a little bit more work, but plants last. More than that, plants grow bigger and they grow more beautiful. If you haven't turned there yet, look with me at Titus 2, just at verse 11. Titus 2, just at verse 11. Should be at page 998, 999. Just the opening phrase. It says, for the grace of God has appeared. This is another instance when the Apostle Paul connects to what he's written previously. So he has previously exhorted Titus to lead the Christians on the island of Crete to live healthy lives. Not just healthy physically, but healthy spiritually, behaviorally, emotionally. And when the Christians in Crete do this, well then they'll present the truth that they believe as beautiful and attractive. Now Paul could have given his, his instructions to do that and stopped at verse 10. He could have avoided and left out verses 11 to 15. But if Paul did that, then the Christians in Crete would be like flowers, not like plants. If they did that, the Christians in Crete would attempt to live attractively without any kind of roots to anchor them or any kind of food to sustain them. You see, Paul knows that if Christians are to live in a way that is healthy and attractive, then they must last. They must grow. They must be like plants, not like flowers. So how do they do this? Well, Paul points to the grace of God. God's grace is the soil and the sustenance of the Christian life. God's grace is how we endure. God's grace is how we grow. And yet most of us treat the Christian life like we're just flowers. We believe in God's grace for how we begin, and then we take ourselves out of God's grace for how we continue. You know the amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. We forget that the same grace will lead us home. So let's read all of this passage, Titus 2, verses 11 to 15. After I'm done reading, I'm going to say, this is God's word. If you agree, would you say, thanks be to God. Titus 2, 11 to 15. For the grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and no one disregard. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. We can sum up this passage with a main point or idea. It goes like this. Out of his grace in Christ, God has done more than just rescue us. He is shining through us. He is changing us. He is sustaining us. Out of his grace in Christ, God has done more than just rescue us. His grace in Christ also change, shines through us, changes us, sustains us. We'll cover these verses in three sections. First, the motive then the means, and finally the method, making up for my failed alliteration from last week, so get the gold star, hopefully. First, the motive. Briefly, before we dive in just into verse 11, I want to give you a lay of the land of verses 11 to 14. I don't know if you've noticed this, but verses 11 to 14 are actually just one long sentence. If the Apostle Paul took English comp with my teacher, Miss Bartlett, she'd mark him up for a run-on sentence. But sometimes Paul just can't help himself. When he gets excited about talking about glorious truths, he just keeps going on and on. He does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1. But here in the book of Titus, Paul is, in one sentence, is unpacking what the grace of God does. You can spot three participle verbs, verbs that have an ing in modify the grace of God. The grace of God is bringing, training, waiting. So when Paul says in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, well, what is he talking about? It seems kind of vague. Well, it becomes clear that Paul is talking not so much about a what as he's talking about a who. You might recognize the Greek word that's translated as appeared. It's the word it can mean to shine light in a dark place, or it can mean to uh, reveal, gloriously so, what's been hidden, made visible. This same word, epiphany, is used to describe Jesus' birth. Jesus stepped off his heavenly throne. He took on flesh. He was born of a woman, and he became gloriously visible, shining in our darkness. John the Apostle writes in chapter 1 that the word of God has dwelt among us, we have seen his glory, glory as the only begotten Son of the Father. So the grace of God has appeared. This grace is a who is Jesus. This grace of Jesus is appearing, and verse 11 says, it has brought salvation for all people. Now I wonder if you just pause, and if you've been a Christian for some time, I wonder if that little phrase makes you kind of nervous. Bringing salvation for all people, does this mean that everybody's going to have salvation? Well, this is one of those phrases where you can lift from its context and make it mean what it doesn't mean. Think about the kind of people Paul's talked about so far in the book of Titus. Chapter 1, verse 16. Go back there. Titus 1, 16. 
Paul talks about guys who are disobedient, detestable, unfit for any good work. These guys have rejected the gospel of Jesus. Very clearly, they are not saved. But then just go up a few verses earlier from where we're at. Chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. Who are the kinds of people Paul talks about there? <laughs> talks about bond servants. These bond servants are part of the church. Jesus has saved even those among the lowest of classes. This is what Paul is getting after here. Not that Jesus has saved all people, but Jesus has saved all kinds of people. Out of his grace, God has brought salvation through Christ to all kinds of people. Like we saw in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, male and female, young and old, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor. And so here in verse 11, that God has done this is our motivation. It's our motivation to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God's grace in Christ has already appeared. It's brought salvation to us. And think about how good this news is. God did not wait to send his son until we, until we stopped being his enemies. God sent his son to live and die in our place while we were yet his enemies. Friends, how could this not motivate you? How could this not well up your hearts to be grateful? We live not to earn God's love. We live because we already have God's love in Christ. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This motivates us out of gratitude, but it motivates us in another way also. We live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives also for the good of other people. I wonder if you've thought of it like this before. God intends to bless the people around you through your holiness. God intends for your good and godly conduct to show other people what God is like. Maybe think of it like this, think of this motivation like this. I, I've probably shared this before in the past, but it fits here. Someone from my church at seminary shared that he had always struggled to remain in shape, at least physically, uh, and he, he, nothing would ever stick. He would try different diets, he would try different exercise routines every New Year's Eve, he'd make the resolution, join Planet Fitness with a bunch of other people, and then eventually fizzle out. But eventually something clicked. What happened was, his wife had her first child. And so now his motivation changed. Suddenly he wanted to stay in shape physically, but it was for the good of another. It was for the good of his son. So he could have the energy to keep up with his son, and so also he could be around his son for as long as he could. So here, Titus 2, verse 11, if God's grace really is available to all kinds of people. Then we should live out our faith before all kinds of people. As Jesus says, we should let our light shine before others, not to bless ourselves, but to bless other people. I think it's really fitting that our book for men's and women's groups touched on this very subject this week. The author explains how we often don't let our light shine before others. Instead, we seek to blend in with others, to fit in, to show other people we're just like them. 
But Jesus says that's like putting your light under a basket so that nobody can see it. Jesus warns us not to do that. Well, friends, it's good when our faith in Christ causes us to be visibly different than other people. It's good sometimes when people see that you're kind of strange and weird or some things you do differently. This visible difference blesses people because it shows people that the gospel actually makes a difference when it saves them. The, the church is often called a hospital for sinners, not a hotel for saints. Well, again, the author of our, our book for Men's and Women's Group clarifies this. He says, a hospital is only desirable if it's more than a quarantined building where the terminally ill go to die. A hospital is only a good place if there's medicine and a remedy there must be visible evidence of a cure that we who were once on our deathbeds have found the antidote. So yes, our gospel is for sick sinners, to be sure, but we preach as healed saints, as those who have been delivered from the malignancy of our former corruption. So because we are grateful to God for bringing us salvation, because we desire the good of others, namely their salvation, both of those are our motivation to live in such a way that shows God really saves people. Now, it's one thing to talk about why we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. It's quite another thing to say how we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Well, that's our next point, not just the motive, but the means. We live in a, in a new way because of God's grace, but also we live in a new way by God's grace. God's grace is not just the motive of our new living. It's the means of our new living. I want to show you how this works. All right, look again with Titus 2. This time look at verses 12 through 14. Paul's going to go from the effect to the cause. He starts by describing the change that has happened and is continuing to happen to Christians. That's the effect. That's the end result. That's verse 12. And then in verses 13 and 14, he'll say what causes that effect. How does that effect come about? So first, let's look at verse 12. The final result, the effect that we see in Christians. So God's grace has appeared. It's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. A few observations about this verse, about the training that happens here, that's happening here. Notice that this training is ongoing, it's continuing. So if the gospel is medicine, it's like God has healed us from our disease when we first accepted it. But as we continue to receive the gospel, it pushes back the effects of the disease that remain. It makes us healthier as we continue to receive it. Another observation about verse 12. Notice that this training is deeper than just surface level behavior. It's more than just we stop sinning. You see, we actually start to renounce sinning. It's not just we stop doing it, it's that we no longer want to do it. 
The transformation begins in our hearts, even that word for worldly passions. Another way you could translate that is worldly cravings. In saving us, God trains us and changes our cravings so that we no longer crave sin, but that we crave, we hunger, we thirst after Him. This training is deeper than surface level behavior. Notice verse 12, this end result, this effect, it does not mean we are passive in this process and do nothing. The verse says, training us to do it. There is volition and effort and discipline on our part, but the power and the fuel for our action is God's grace. Verses that clearly lay this out, Philippians 2. Verses 12 to 13, which says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Looking at verse 12, still this final end result. Notice where this effect shows up. We are self-controlled, upright, and godly. One commentator points out how each of these virtues refer to how we handle our relationships. God's grace makes us self-controlled. It transforms how we relate to ourselves. We are no longer ruled by our cravings. God's grace makes us upright. We are transformed in how we relate to other people. We love as we have been loved. We forgive as we have been forgiven. God's grace makes us godly. Are transformed in how we relate to God. No longer relate to Him as an enemy, as an orphan, but as a child. And we do all of these things in the present age. We don't do this isolated and sheltered from the world. We do this while we still live in the world with all of its dangers, toils, and snares. God's grace has trained us trained us to see the truth about ourselves and the truth about God. It makes me think of another line from John Newton's famous hymn, Amazing Grace. He writes later on, "'Tis grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears removed." This means that in grace, God showed me the truth about myself, which is really bad news. But that in grace again, God showed me his merciful provision of Christ, which is relief. Friend, the world will tell you constantly that you are fine just the way you are. The world will tell you that you need to express your cravings, not control your cravings. The world won't tell you what to do when your cravings inevitably contradict each other. It will just tell you to be free. It won't tell you how to use your freedom well. Listen, we, we want to be clear. God has made you with dignity, worth, and value. God does come to us just the way we are, but the good news is God doesn't keep us the way we are. The good news is that he rewires our hearts, he changes our cravings. So we say this morning, if you have not done so, give your heart to Christ who does this. Trust in Jesus' payment for the ways you have lived against God. Trust in Jesus as the power to give you a new heart that loves God.
So in verse 12, we have the effect, uh, this end result. But how do we get there? What are the causes that brought about this effect? We'll look again at verses 13 and 14. It says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good, good works. So here's how this works. God's grace trains us in the present by reshaping our future and redefining our past. God's grace trains us in the present by reshaping our future and redefining our past. Verse 13 looks ahead to the future. It says it's a future we're waiting for. And this isn't the same type of waiting you do at the doctor's office. You go in that room and all there really is to do is just sit there. And maybe you can pick up the magazines if you're so bold that a bunch of sick people have touched. <laughs> it's not that type of waiting. This waiting is eager anticipation. The same words used to describe Simeon in Luke chapter 2. He's a Greek character that you might remember him. He's a guy who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He saw Jesus as a baby. Simeon, as he was waiting, was not idle and weary. Luke calls him righteous and devout. That's because he was eagerly anticipating. This is what waiting looks like. But what is it exactly that we are waiting for? Again, verse 13, it's not so much of a what, rather it's a who. It's our blessed hope. It's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we normally describe Jesus' return as a coming, not as an appearing. Appearing implies revealing what's hidden. So this must mean that Jesus has already risen in glory. He currently reigns in glory. But soon, his glory will no longer be hidden. It will be visible. And did you see how Paul describes Jesus? Our great God and Savior. Paul's now referring to two persons of the Trinity, Father and Son. He's using two titles for one person of the Trinity. God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are waiting to see Jesus in glory. We are waiting to look into the eyes of the one who gave himself for us to redeem us. We are waiting to see him and be made like him. We are waiting to see the one who has conquered and reigns like a lion, but who loves like a we are waiting to see the one who will end all evil, who will make the lame walk and the blind see and the sick heal. We are waiting to see the one who will make all things new. He is who we're waiting for. Now, I don't know if you notice this, but in these verses right now, we are living between two appearances. The appearance of Jesus in grace and the appearance of Jesus in glory. Now, many people in Jesus' own day stumbled over him because they conflated these two appearances. They focused only on Jesus' appearance in glory and forgot his appearance in grace. And one author helpfully clarifies, if Jesus does not first come in grace, none of us can see him in his glory. 
That's because Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. So my friend, if you have not received Jesus in his gracious work to live, die, and rise again as a substitute for sinners, if you have not received his grace, then he will not receive you when he comes. So by reshaping our future, God trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present. Hope and assurance for the future trains us to say no to what's ungodly in the present. A little analogy, you are able to say no for the immediate pleasure of the candy bar if you are striving for the better future goal of losing 20 pounds. Remember how future grace trained Moses to say no to sin and yes to God. Hebrews 11, verses 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He was looking toward the reward. God sustains us and trains us in the present by reminding us of our future. I think some of us here have probably have, probably have an idea of our future that has changed a lot. That our lives currently are not going how we expected them to be. That you had hoped that you would still, for instance, have a relationship with the person and you don't have that relationship. You had hoped that you would have moved up the career ladder when you're stuck in the same job. You had hoped that you would have children, but now you weren't sure if you will ever have them. You had hoped that your country would get back on track, but it seems to have lost its way. You had hoped that you would be done with sickness, but it's still here. sees you and God hears you. So the question now is how do the disappointments of the present not lead us to despair of the future? The answer, God's grace. 1 Peter 1 verse 13 Set your hope full. Not partially. Not occasionally. Set your hope fully that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God's grace in Christ trains us to say no to sin and yes to God. It does this by reshaping our future and it does this by redefining our past. Verse 14. The one who will appear is the one who has already appeared and gave himself for us. Gave himself for us. Us. Is there a greater gift that Jesus could have given besides himself? Eternal, sinless, perfect Son of God. Is there a worse group of people that Jesus could have given the greatest gift to besides us? The people who are hostile against him, who rejected him, who murdered him. God's grace in Christ trains our hearts to 
message to the talents of our hearts. Reflecting on this verse, one pastor says, if you want people to live a good life, as described here, don't emphasize the good that they must do for God. Emphasize the good that God has done for them. And what is this good that Jesus has done for us? He gave himself up for us to do what? Well, two things. First, to redeem us. To redeem us from all lawlessness. This is the language of Exodus. To redeem is to purchase somebody out of slavery. Jesus has brought about the new and better Exodus, the one that God promised in places like Ezekiel 37. This indicates that in our former state, we did more than just commit sins. We were sinful. We were enslaved to sin. This is more than actions. This is nature. So when Jesus died on the cross, he purchased us out from underneath the master of sin. He gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify us. Jesus did more than set us free. He made us his own. In his purchase of us, he's given us a new status of free and forgiven, but he's also given us a new identity of belonging to him. Again, I, don't, I think this is an aspect of God's grace that's just underemphasized. Jesus did more than pay for your sin. Jesus paid for your holiness. And Jesus' purchases are effective. When Jesus died on the cross and did not come back in sufficient funds, it is finished. Those whom Jesus has purchased will be holy. They will have hearts that are zealous for good works. This is the receipt that proves Jesus purchased you. Is that receipt there for you? Those who know Jesus as Savior, those who know the one who loved them and gave himself for them are not lukewarm toward him. They are zealous for him. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify us. You want to think about how this works. Think of a restaurant. I don't know if you've ever driven past a restaurant and they hang up a banner that says under new management. Have you seen that before? Why do restaurants bother to let the public know that? Well, it must be because their customers know that the old management stunk. The restaurant, it was like they were enslaved to bad owners. But a new owner has purchased the restaurant. What's the first thing an owner's going to do? Overhaul it. We're talking new cooking, new cleaning, new customer service. When a restaurant hangs up the banner under new management, they tell people there is a new zeal to run an excellent restaurant. But we can press this a little bit further. Here's the problem. You can put new management in place, but your employees can still operate when the old management is in charge. This happens, unfortunately, even locally. It's a place called the Mad Cactus. Pearl Road in Strongsville. Pearl and Whitney. Doug Nix's stomping ground. That restaurant got featured on the show Restaurant Impossible. It's hosted by Mr. Biceps and Super Chef Robert Irvine. He takes a struggling restaurant. He overhauls it in a couple days. They got their new cooking. They got their new cleaning. They got their new customer service. A new start. Matt Cactus got all of this. But a couple months later, Matt Cactus went back to the ways of the old man. Now, the heart is the same. 
<laughs> How will this redefined past train you to live well in the present? Live like you're under new management. Jesus has purchased you with his own blood. He did not do this so that you would go back to the ways of the old management. The world will tell you that the most important value you should have is to be true to yourself. Guys, if you were good at that, then why would Jesus have to come? Instead, be true to your new self. Redeemed, purified, purchased, changed. All because of God's grace in Christ. This redefined past will train you to have a stable, secure, and satisfy identity right now. And nothing else can do that. You do not have to ride the ups and downs of people's approval. You have God's approval. You do not need to settle for the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin is a lousy master. It will not die for you. You will have to die for it. For the better master has died for you. Now you live to stay close to God's grace in Christ trains us to say no to sin and yes to God. It does this, I love how somebody puts it, it, it does this by pulling us forward with a reshaped future, and it does this by pushing us from behind with a redefined past. Now the last question we covered from verse 15. Are there certain activities that we can do through which God will train us in his grace? What are the methods that train our hearts Look at verse 15. Paul tells Titus, Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard them. Hearing the word of God is how God's grace trains our hearts to operate in new ways. Hearing the word of God is how God's grace trains our hearts to operate now, if we're going to receive this training, verse 15 says that our hearts have to be open to receive instruction and correction. If we're going to receive this training, we must regard the Lord's wisdom and the Lord's desires above our own. It reminds me of a famous quote from Martin Luther. I've shared it before, but it's about forgetfulness, so I figured it's appropriate if I could share it again. <laughs> the lady in Luther's congregation asked Martin, Marty, every sermon preach the gospel to us. Why? Luther replies, because you forget it every week. <laughs> we never stop needing training. Our hearts are like our bodies. If we stop giving ourselves the training, we will not trend toward fitness. We will trend toward flat. God trains his people in grace through the method of receiving this is one way God makes us spiritually fit. And think about this too. Through training, we are not only strengthened, we are formed. So I think of it kind of like typing, right? If you know how to type, do you remember when you didn't know how to type? I, when I didn't know how to type, it was kind of a one-finger deal, like every subtle letter. I was convinced for a long time that my keyboard, they forgot to put a Z on it. 
But now I know where Z is. And I don't even have to think about typing. It's just natural. I'm trained. So there's a reason why Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in we want to receive God's word so frequently, so deeply, that the gospel starts to become natural. Natural to how we think, to how we react, to how we speak. Here's just a quick example of that, and you might not even be aware of it. Every week, we come together for corporate worship. We're trying to train ourselves in grace. One way we do that is the songs we sing. The order in which we sing it. You might not have noticed this, but normally we try for our very first song to be looking at God in praise. And then we try for the very next song we sing to be confessing our need of God because in comparison to Him, we have fallen short and have sinned. And the next song after that, we try to sing about Jesus, His person, His work that God has provided Him out of grace to and then the final song to close us out, having remembered Christ, we ask God, help us to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Every week, week in, week out, we are trying to train ourselves in grace. Brothers and sisters, may we not be more serious about training our bodies. May we not be more serious about training our minds, as worthy as both of those endeavors are, than we are about training our hearts. So in conclusion, be a plant, not a flower. God's grace is good for more than just our beginning. It's good for our continuing. The same grace of God that saves you is the same grace of God that shines through you, that sanctifies you, that sustains you. We join John Newton in saying, "'Tis grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home." Respond to preaching the word.